There we go. All right. So I lied yesterday because I told you there weren't going to be any changes to this and I realized I didn't put one thing in there. So there has been a change to with the items that are due. Um, homework, extra credit assignment and quiz are still due on Tuesday of next week. So those first three. The other thing I hadn't added in was your solar observations. I collect those three times during the year. So instead of people waiting until right before it's due and then saying I didn't make any observations or anything, I ask you to do them. So that means just by the 29th, one observation. So if you get a chance to get one shadow measurement, all I need is the date you made it, the time should be around 1.15, the height of your object, and the length of your shadow. That's all. You, you don't need to do any calculations or anything else with it. I'll do that. I just want to make sure you're on the right track and that makes sure that you're actually starting it now. If you get more than one, that's great. But at least one by next, that's Wednesday, that's the day of the exam. So as long as you get one of those, you can turn it in. There's a drop box on D2L, you can submit the numbers there. You do have to though, if you submit it on D2L, you have to put it in as an attachment. Sort of a quirk of D2L is that you can't just type something in the text box and submit it. It won't let you do it if you don't attach something. So you can attach something else if you have to or a blank document or whatever or you can just put your numbers in that or you can just write it on a piece of paper and give it to me in class that day by that day is fine. And I will look at those. I do give you five points. I do this three times so I do give you five points for each of them. So it's part of your solar observations grade. If you can't get one by then it's not going to crush you. Five points out of 1200 isn't going to crush you but it's five easy points because I don't grade you on how accurate your observation was. I grade you that you turned one in. So. Make sure you get one of those in by the 29th. Uh, exam is the same day on chapter 0 through 2. We'll certainly be past chapter 2 by then, but I'm cut, the exam will still cut off after the first three chapters. Homework 2, I'm going to plan on giving you tomorrow uh, so that you have some time to look at, especially those chapter 2 questions before the exam. And then the article review is due on the following Monday. There will also be a couple quizzes that I'll add up in there next week. In terms of the article review, I did go into, and before I do the picture, I did go into the content area. Under lesson four, which is actually I've made visible for you now, usually it wouldn't have been visible till next week. There's, if you go on to D2L and log in and go under the content tab, it'll show something vaguely similar to this. Uh, we finished lesson one, we finished lesson two we're working on right now on the history of astronomy, and three will probably start today and or tomorrow and work on that. Lesson four is telescopes. The reason I opened it is that's the lesson where the first article review is due. And under that I have a bunch of possible articles. You're not constrained to these, but these are a bunch of articles from Sky and Telescope. There's what, about 10, 12, 13, about 17 or 18 of them up there. So you're welcome to look at the, you're welcome to use one of those if you want. You're welcome to use three of them, three different ones. Don't do the same article three times, but you're welcome to choose three of those. If nothing there interests you, at least take a look at one or two. That's the type of article that I'm looking for. That's kind of what I'm looking for. So if you see something there that you know, jumps out at you that you're interested in reading, you can download it there. These are all, the whole article is there for you. So it's not just a reference to it, it actually gives you the whole article. And these are the kind of things that you could download from the hack libraries. If you go into EBSCO and look for Sky and Telescope, you can actually download uh, any of, these, any of these articles as well. I've put them up here as well for you. So you're welcome to use any of those you want as the article review. If nothing strikes your fancy on those or you really want to look at something else, 
then you know, you're welcome to use that as well. I just wanted to let you know that they are up there. They are available now, so if you want to look at them this weekend and you know, you've got a long weekend, if you're not all busy this uh, holiday weekend, you can jump ahead and start doing, doing, the review, doing the reviews or the re review or the reviews. The one is due on the third and then we'll have two more coming up. So I wanted to let you know that those are up there. Questions? This is the quiet week. Everything, everything goes crazy next week when everything starts being due, you know. Three items due, two items due, one, you know, have an item due every, about every day most of the time. There'll be, there'll be something. Some of them are little, you know, one solar observation. Not too bad, right? You know, one exam. Yuck, right? I, I know. So, but some of them are not too big assignments. The extra credit assignment, if you're doing that, that's not very big. Uh, the quiz shouldn't be too, too horrible, I hope. And the rest of, the rest of them. So, all right, well, picture of the day for today then is a red sprite. So a red sprite is actually a form of lightning, something I was learning about and looking at this today. It's not something I've heard of. It's not an astronomical phenomenon. It's actually atmospheric in the Earth's atmosphere. It's actually a form of lightning. And you see the little red kind of blob up here is what is called a red sprite, something that really wasn't had been seen before, had been seen even a hundred years before. Uh, pilots in the 50s and 60s saw the phenomena, but it had never been documented until 1989. So it wasn't until 1989 that actually a photograph of it was taken to sort of confirm all these people that, you know, these pilots weren't just seeing things. It wasn't just being high up in the atmosphere that was causing this, causing them to see things. So it wasn't actually documented until uh, 1989. And what apparently that we think happens is it's associated with the thunderstorms. You can see the great cloud banks down here. And when you get a lightning strike, typically lightning is an electrical discharge. And that means it's transferring negative charge from the cloud to the ground. Once in a while, it transfers positive charge. And when that happens, apparently what, what it is, I'm no meteorology expert, so I'm kind of out of my, out of my comfort zone here. Um, the, the upper part of the cloud, then it's a negative charge, and that can cause lightning to go upwards in this red, what we see as a red sprite. Actually can be you know, hundreds of meters in size. The long tendrils, some of them look like a jellyfish almost. So you get sort of a view of that with some of the tendrils coming down. So a very interesting type of lightning that occurs not below the clouds striking the earth but actually going upwards and going upwards many miles into the atmosphere you know not just two three miles these things are 50 you know some some of them have seen 40 50 miles up so we're getting well up toward the very edges of the atmosphere as the intense lightning strike going down and sort of a backwards backlash when it's one of those positive positive lightning strikes so really need a meteorologist to explain it to us a little bit better and that, that's not me but since I'm this, just doing the picture and I don't get to pick them that's what we're doing that's what we get to see today so I'll try to answer questions if there are any but <laughs> but I had to actually look at it myself and study it a little bit myself before I could talk about it today so good thing I do look at them first and don't just come in here and say hey what are we going to talk about today because I would have been completely lost. What I didn't say is also in the background, you're also seeing the aurora, not just the sprite there and the thunderclouds, we actually have the aurora. And they did mention that this might be the first time that a sprite and an aurora have ever been captured in the same photograph. So something, a first, a first there. 
No, no, no. Okay. Where was this located? This was taken, I believe it was South Dakota. It was taken, yeah, Central South Dakota it was taken. So after a thunderstorm, or you see out towards the, the storm clouds out towards the edge, you can see the sprite, the sprite up there. So apparently you see it better when you're looking at the clouds edge on. Obviously if the thunderstorm, if you're under that thunderstorm, you're not going to see a whole lot through the clouds, right? So if you've got a whole big thunderstorm there above you, but when you can see it off to the edge, you know, a storm cloud, storm clouds out in the distance, sometimes you can see it up above there. It's a relatively rare phenomenon. You have to have the conditions just right to be able to see it. Yes, sir? An aurora it has nothing to do with the light hitting off the glaciers. What it is is the light of energy from the sun, particles from the sun striking the Earth's atmosphere and causing it to glow. So it's actually a glow in the Earth's atmosphere. It's not actually a reflection. Not actually a reflection, though. It's really the particles from the sun strike the Earth's atmosphere and excite it and cause it to glow, giving it that greenish, greenish light. And we'll look at that. Actually, that's part of the next chapter. We'll look at some of some of the ways that that, will, that that works. And that's one of that and one of the labs that we'll do likely next week, probably next Tuesday that we'll do. All right, all right, well, here we go. Back to chapter one. And this is where I sort of, gave, sort of introduced it to you a little bit last time and talked about the problem of the motions of the planets. The planets don't move in a simple way. The moon moves around the Earth. Okay, we've known that for thousands of years. The moon moves around the Earth and it makes a nice simple path through the sky. It travels through the constellations just as the planets do, but instead of this little loop, it just keeps going around and comes back around the sky and does it again and again and again. Very simple motion. The sun also undergoes a relatively simple motion. It passes through the various constellations over the course of the year and makes a, loop, makes a complete loop around and comes back and does the whole same thing again the following year. But the planets were different. The planets, yes, they move with respect to the stars. They look like a star. If you've ever seen one of the planets you know, at night, um, Venus should be getting visible. I have to look. I haven't really looked, but Venus should be nice and getting nice out in the evening sky right after sunset now. I'll have to take a look and see. You should be able to see that. It's coming back to the evening sky right now. Uh, but if you've ever seen one of the planets, it doesn't look like a planet. You don't see those nice big images of Jupiter sitting there and you look up at the sky that you see on the, in the textbook or anything. You see a little point of light. But when you watch them over time and you compare their positions to the stars as astronomers did even thousands of years ago, you'd see that relative to some of the brighter stars it would move. So that one, one month it would be here, the next month it would have moved this distance and gotten closer to these stars, then it would have passed them, and then they make this very strange retrograde loop and go backwards. That's something that is quite different. The sun and the moon don't do that. Only the planets seem to do that. Only the planets do that. And that was a difficulty in terms of explaining their motion. Why are the planets moving backwards? Why is this planet all of a sudden deciding to go the opposite direction and then go back again? And they're very difficult to explain in an Earth-centered system. And until, you know, four, five, four hundred years ago or so, we were pretty, four or five hundred years ago, we were pretty much stuck on an Earth-centered system. Just about every astronomer uh, agreed that the Earth was at the center, that we weren't moving. 
And it was quite obvious because when you walk outside, you feel the wind rushing through as we're traveling at tens of thousands of miles an hour. You don't feel it, right? It doesn't feel like we're moving if you walk outside. It looks like everything else is moving. Um, we don't detect the parallax that I mentioned last time that you would be able to detect if the Earth was moving. That was unable to be detected. So it's difficult to explain in an Earth-centered system, but not impossible. You can do it. And I showed you this last time. There's the Earth at the center. And this is the very basic uh, style geocentric model, a very simple one. But you have the Earth, and you have your planet. But instead of the planet orbiting around the Earth, it orbits on an epicycle, a little circle. That little circle is centered on the big circle of the main orbit called the deferent. And then it orbits around on this. So the planet stays on the epicycle, but the center of the epicycle moves around the deferent. Makes a lot of sense, right? No, right? Not to us today when we understand things like gravity and how does the, why is this planet orbiting on an epicycle that orbits around nothing? But don't forget, we're long before the time of Newton and gravity. We didn't have any understanding of gravity. But this does explain the motions of the planets. You can use this model and you can adjust the speed. How fast is the planet moving? How fast is the center moving around? How fast is the planet spinning around on the epicycle? You can adjust the size of the epicycle. I mean, you've got all these things that you can adjust. And you can explain, go back one, you can explain this type of motion. So you can explain why the planet would move like this in the sky. And that's what they were trying to do. So even though we know now that it's wrong and just you know, conceptually to us with our modern understanding, it doesn't make much sense because you have this planet orbiting around nothing. And in fact, in more as, as the models got more and more uh, complicated, in fact, the Earth was moved away from the center. So the Earth wasn't at the center. It was slightly off-centered. So now not only do you have the planet on an epicycle circling around, but it's not circling around the Earth. It's circling around a point slightly away from the Earth. That was necessary to make more act to get the models to match more, ma more accurately with what we were observing. So got more and more complicated, and, but it could explain the motions. So here's an example of a uh, set of epicycles. So this would have been a more complicated geocentric model. Pretty much what I showed you before. Here's the Earth. Moon orbited around it. Nice and easy. Didn't have anything else there. Mercury orbits around with an epicycle here to explain its retrograde motion. Venus orbits, has a deferent, and orbits around its retrograde to explain its retrograde motion. The Sun didn't need an epicycle. The Sun doesn't have retrograde motion. Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, the outer planets, the other planets that were known, would. Now, a couple of other things that had to be made were certain observations. We saw that not only did the planets undergo retrograde motion, but Venus and Mercury, if you've ever seen them, you've all seen Venus, whether you know it or not, probably you've seen Venus. Because it's that real bright object in the evening sky or in the morning sky, depending on the time of year and what the position is. You know, it's out there. It's the, brightest, it's the brightest object in the sky after the sun and the moon. So it's a hard one to not have seen. Mercury is a very hard one to see. You've got to go looking for Mercury to, in order to see it. So if you've seen Mercury, you've actually gone looking for it. To do, to do that. I've done that once or twice to actually find it when it's actually visible. They're always very close to the sun. 
That means you can see them after, right after sunset in the western sky. You can see them right before sunrise in the eastern sky. So in addition to this, you also had to have sort of a line co- connecting the Earth and the Sun. And you had to make sure that the center of Venus's orbit and the center of Mercury's orbit stayed on that line. Because otherwise, if you let them wander around and Venus ends up over here, and the sun is there, now all of a sudden you should be seeing Venus in the nighttime sky, which we never see. It's not possible. So you had a lot of complexity that went into into this model. And this was the model of Ptolemy. Uh, Ptolemy, uh, astronomer of the, about the second century AD, kind of put together everything that had been done before and came up with his uh, great, great work, the Almagest. So his great work of his that actually was about 13, 13 chapter, big 13 books worth of material describing how the planets moved, tables of how they of how they'd move, so sort of the sizes of all of of all of the of all of the um, epicycles, how fast things had in order to explain the motions of the planets. And this was our primary work really for over a thousand years. So when you think about that, his model had to do had to do a pretty good job. It lasted from around the second century AD and it was still being used at the time of Copernicus in the 15th century. So not too bad to have something that lasts 1,300 years. You know, Will Einstein's theory is only 100, Einstein's theories are only about 100 years old. They're still the best we've got. Will they still be in that much in use 1,000 years from now? I'd, I'd bet not. You know, I might be wrong. You know, maybe Einstein really did see that far ahead and was able to get stuff that nobody else could see. But I would guess that you know, hundreds of years from now, we'll probably come up with something that works a little bit better. But this one actually lasted for thousands of years as the model to explain and to be able to predict the motions of the planets. And it worked pretty well. Again, if you look at it, try to look at it conceptually, it just doesn't make sense. You've got all these things orbiting around stuff and there's nothing there. So you've got, and you have big things orbiting around smaller things, right? You've got the sun. How is the sun orbiting around the Earth when the sun is so many times larger than the Earth? And even many of the early astronomers knew that the sun was much bigger. Didn't know about the planets, because all we could see was points of light for them at the time. So you couldn't tell those, but we knew that the sun was much bigger than the Earth. So why was it orbiting around the Earth? But it was the great model for many thousands, for many thousands of years and was used for, for many thousands, for at least a thousand years, and was used to explain the motions of the planets. Now, did I? In order to explain retrograde motion, a different way to explain it is in a heliocentric model, so putting the sun at the center. And what that did was you put the sun at the center, now you've got the Earth going around the sun, so you put the Earth in motion, You've got Mars, in this case, going around the sun as well. And if you look at Mars from the Earth, there's a time of year when we pass Mars in our orbit, right? We're on the inside orbit, moving faster. Mars is on the outside orbit, moving a little bit slower. Well, if you're on the highway and you're passing a truck, you're both moving in the same direction. But if you're passing it, what does it look like it's doing? It looks like it's going backwards, right? 
So it looks like it is going backwards. So when we pass Mars over here at stages, you know, five, six, seven, Mars is slowing down as we catch up to it. It's going to look like it goes backwards for a short time. And then as we get far enough away, it's going to seem to move forward again. So a much simpler way to explain retrograde motion without any complexity of adding in the epicycles in order to be able to explain the observed motions. Now, I should say that jumping from one slide to the next kind of skips a thousand years worth of astronomy. That took a long time to get to this. So it wasn't that uh, Copernicus just saw so much further. He was really building on the work of a lot of other astronomers over that thousand, that thousand years. It wasn't that Ptolemy's was just accepted without, um, without question for that time. It was certainly looked at and uh, picked apart. There were a number of astronomers. If you've studied history at all, you know that there wasn't, you know, Western Europe was the Dark Ages, you know, from what, you know, after the fall of the Roman Empire, 300, 400, 500 AD, uh, until the time of the Renaissance. So there wasn't a lot scientifically going on there, but there was a lot of science going on in other areas. And, and actually, a lot of Ptolemy's work and the earlier work of the Greeks went into the Indian. India, Indian as in India, Indian, not as in American Indian, and into the Arab world. So Ptolemy's work, actually Almagest, is an Arabic translation. You always see the alls with the Arab names. So Almagest is actually an Arabic translation of his work that was saved by the Arabs, translated, and then later translated back into Latin in the, I think it was like about the 11th or 12th, about the 12th century. Translated back into Latin, so kind of brought back to, to Europe as their current understanding of the motions. So, just as I'm kind of jumping here because that's the way the book does it, they don't go into a lot of detail on uh, a lot of what happened there, but a lot of the developments in mathematics were done. A lot of the Indian astronomers did a lot of uh, understanding of the mathematics, trigonometry, and the Arab astronomers, a lot of work on this model. And then it finally came back to Europe and at the time of the Renaissance and was then yeah, re-expanded upon. And Copernicus was the one who actually suggested the, and published the heliocentric model. But as I mentioned, even some of the Greek astronomers suggested that maybe this would make more sense. But without any kind of evidence, there was no way to accept it. So even in the you know, 13, 1400s, it was really pretty much the consensus of astronomers that the Earth didn't move. And even at the time of Copernicus, you know, he wasn't uh, out there you know, proclaiming this. Copernicus actually published his book on the motions as he was dying. So he was on his deathbed. I think he got to see the first copies of it. So he didn't even want to publish it, knowing the issues that could come with trying to put forth something like that, like you know, some very um, heretical model that was not going to be easily accepted by the governments and the church at the time. So he didn't even publish it until, until very, very late in his life. But it turns out he was mostly correct. Not quite, because Copernicus still kept one thing that wasn't necessary, and that was the idea of the Greeks that everything moved in circles. So even Copernicus's model still had everything moving in circles. And for that reason, one of the reasons that Copernicus's model wasn't accepted so easily 
was because he, he used circles, it meant his observations weren't, his, his observations, his predictions weren't really all that much better than Ptolemy's. So if you've got a model that's been working, you've been using for 1,200 years, and you've got a brand new model, and they both predict just about as accurately, which one are you going to stick with? Right? You're going to stick with the one that's been working for a long time, right? Instead of going with the new one. Now, if, the new one, if this one gives you one accuracy and this one gives you 100 times better accuracy, well, then you've got a reason to change, right? But if they're giving you the same thing, why are you going to go with this new model when there's no specific reason to? So his models, because he used circles, and it wasn't for another 100 years that we actually got out of the idea of using circles for the orbits of the planets. They don't look circular here just because of the way they're tilted, but they're actually still considering circular, circular orbits. All right, we're going to jump ahead, and then I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and then jump back. But I'm going to go up to Galileo here. These are a couple of the observations of, that Galileo made. Um, Galileo uh, did not invent the telescope. So typically a common misconception. Everyone thinks of Galileo as the inventor of the telescope. Uh, he really was not. The telescope had been invented a few years before he used it. He heard of its invention. But he was likely the, the first, or certainly was the first, to turn it to the sky and record his observations that we know of. So not the inventor of the telescope, but was the one who thought about using it, turning it to the sky. Uh, you think of a very simple telescope would have been very useful for other purposes in order of being able to see out you know, great distances at sea. So would have had Earth-based uses as well. One of the, some of the things that he saw, well, first he saw that the moon, the moon had craters. Mountains, valleys, it had surface features to it. You can't see that when you look at the moon. Right? You look at the moon, you see, you see it's got some different coloring to it. Right? It's got darker areas and lighter areas. But you can't really see any of the detailed structures. What Galileo found, even when he looked, at the, looked through the, his very small telescopes that he first used, and these telescopes, Right, you've seen those little telescopes at the, you know, the discount stores. You know, they're maybe, you know, that big around for the for the lenses. Well, Galileo would have loved to have had something that big. His things were, you know, a half an inch to an inch in, si in, di in diameter for his lenses. They were incredibly tiny. So, you know, those little tiny ones, the little junky ones you can buy for thirty or forty bucks, you know, at Target or Walmart or whatever. There, Galileo would have loved to have had something that that big. But even with those small ones, he could actually see the features of the moon. He could actually see that the moon had craters. Why was that important? You know, big deal. That doesn't, prove, that doesn't prove anything at all, right? Well, one of the uh, postulates of the Greeks was that, and of Aristotle especially, one of the early Greek philosophers, was that the heavens were perfect and the earth was imperfect. So everything in the heavens moved in circles, were perfect spheres, and everything on earth was imperfect. So seeing that the moon had craters, now the moon is looking a lot like the earth. So something here in the heavens is imperfect. One of the other things that he saw, maybe you can explain that one away, right? Earth is, the moon is so close to the earth it's been corrupted by us, right? It's the closest object, you know, earth has just corrupted it over time and that's why it's not quite as perfect as the rest of the objects in the heavens. Okay, we can explain that one away. How about the sun? 
You don't want to look at the sun through a telescope? Uh, Galileo likely didn't. If he did look at the sun through a telescope, it would have been done, you know, uh, very early, like sunrise or sunset when you're looking through it, or it would have been projected. If you've ever looked through a telescope, you can point the telescope at the sun, you can project the image out the back onto a piece of paper and look at it that way, or project it onto the ground and watch it that way. So he certainly didn't point, even his small telescope would have, would have you know, burned his eyes out looking at the sun directly. But when he looked at the sun, he saw sunspots. So now not, not only is the moon not perfect, but the sun, which is the thing that gives us you know, all our heat, all our light, is not perfect either. There are actually spots on the surface of the sun. And we're also seeing that the sun rotates. How do we know the sun rotates? Well, we see these sunspots and we can watch them travel across the surface of the sun. So if the sun is rotating, you might see it there one day, and the second day here, and the third day here, and, and so on as it moves across the face of the sun. So you could measure the rotational period of the sun by watching a sunspot move around it. So the moon's not perfect. The sun isn't even perfect. Again, that doesn't really go anything against the geocentric theory. That doesn't prove anything as to whether the Earth is moving or the sun, or the Earth is moving around the sun or the sun is moving around the Earth. But it does sort of bring you know, into question some of the thoughts of the ancient Greeks that had thought as to the heavens, the perfection of the heavens. The ones that helped a little bit more are Jupiter's moons. One of the earliest discoveries of Jupiter's moons, uh, Galileo certainly turned his telescope to the moon and the sun being two of the brightest objects in the sky, and Jupiter being one of the brightest planets in the sky was also something he looked at. And when he looked at Jupiter, he saw a little tiny disk, no, not, not a star, actually had some size to it. When you looked at a star, you just saw a point of light, that was it. When you actually looked at Jupiter, you could see a disk, but you also saw that it had four stars that surrounded it. And those four stars, if you watched them over the course of a few days, would appear to move. And you could actually track their orbits and find out that they were orbiting around Jupiter. Now why was that important? That meant that for certain, not everything orbited the Earth. This is the first proof of anything else that is not orbiting the Earth. Does it mean we're necessarily, that the Earth is necessarily moving? No. Still doesn't say that that's correct, but you see we're starting to get that circumstantial evidence built up, that there are some cases that, well, you know, the Greeks were wrong that everything is perfect. Not everything orbits the Earth. We now see evidence of Jupiter's moons that are not orbiting around the Earth, that are certainly orbiting around Jupiter. Meaning that Jupiter could orbit around the Earth, right? Go, stay with the geocentric theory, say Jupiter is orbiting around the Earth. One of the arguments against the Earth being able to move was how could the Earth possibly move and not leave the moon behind in its orbit? Remember, no understanding of gravity and how that works. We can explain that later on. But without that, you know, how is the Earth going to be moving and not leave this way behind? Leave the moon way behind? Well, Here's proof that it could happen. Jupiter is certainly moving, whether it's moving around the Earth or around the Sun, 
doesn't matter. It's able to move and still have objects orbiting around it. So definite evidence that not everything orbited the Earth but didn't show necessarily whether Jupiter was orbiting the Sun or the Earth. The last one, four, is the phases of Venus. This was the big one. Still doesn't quite prove everything, but gets us the best evidence we'll get for another couple hundred of ye- hundred years. Phases of Venus. When we look at the Earth-centered solar system, if you have the Earth here at the center, and you had Venus orbiting around here, and you had the Sun orbiting around the Earth, and remember I said you had to kind of keep them on that line, so Venus had to stay on this circle. So it would always be on one side or the other of the sun. That meant that Venus was always between the sun and the earth. When the moon is between the sun and the earth, what phase do we get? If it's right between them, we get a new phase, right? If it's a little bit further out, we get a crescent phase. So this model makes a prediction. It says Venus will always appear as a crescent. And it doesn't. So it makes the prediction that Venus will always appear as a crescent phase. So it's a good scientific model. It's making a prediction. It wasn't anything that we could test until we had a telescope. Right? Without a telescope, I have no way to tell what the phase of Venus is. It's much too small. My eyes can't see that much detail. If we look at the Sun at the center instead, and put Venus here, and Earth here, well, here's the Earth. Venus could be here, could be in an almost in the direction of the Sun, could be in an almost new phase. But Venus could also be over here in an almost full phase. So you'll get the full cycle of phases for Venus. So, two different models each making a different prediction about what will happen when we look at the phases of Venus. One says it's always going to look as a crescent. One says you're going to be able to see everything. You could see here from Earth, you could see Venus on the other side of the Sun, and it would look as closer to a full phase. So you'd see the complete ranges of phases as Venus moved around the Sun. Around the sun. Note that because it's closer to the sun than the earth, no matter where we are, it's still going to look close to the sun in the sky. You're never going to see it further away than, you know, some angle away from the sun. It's always going to be relatively close to the sun in the sky. So you still can't see it at nighttime. It's good because that's what we see. We don't see Venus at 2 o'clock in the morning. Not unless you're really far north or something where the sun's up all, up 24 hours right now. So. They both make very good predictions, and what Galileo found was that Venus underwent a full cycle of phases. He could see the full phase of Venus. So what did that prove? Well, that proved that this model was incorrect. Did it prove that the Earth was moving around the Sun? Actually, no. There still are other models that were come up with that could explain the full phase of Venus, 
without putting the Earth at the center. Because recall, there's still no proof that the Earth moves. We're still looking for parallax. We haven't been able to detect that. There's no other evidence that the Earth is moving. So that bothered a lot of astronomers because they might have wanted to accept this theory, but it's like it makes a prediction. It says I should be able to see the parallax of the stars, and I can't detect it. You know? And it wasn't that they weren't trying to measure it. They were trying to make measurements. They just were unable to measure that parallax. So it did not prove that the Earth was moving, but it did prove that Venus had to be orbiting the Sun. So whatever model you came up with had to have Venus orbiting the Sun. And one other model that was done that was actually, after this one got thrown out, Galileo's observations threw out completely Ptolemy's model. Could not have the Earth at the center and everything orbiting around the Earth. But you could have, and a model that worked at the time of the Renaissance, was that you could have the Earth at the center. You could have the Sun moving around the Earth. And you could have the planets then orbiting the Sun. Does that make any more sense to us nowadays? Not really. We're still pre-gravity and trying to, in terms of understanding that. But this does explain all the observations Galileo made. You could certainly explain the phases of Venus because you'd be able to see the complete cycle of phases. Venus could be on the near side of the Sun, could be on the far side of the Sun. It also, astronomers like this and scientists of the time because the Earth wasn't moving and we still had not made any measurements that showed that the Earth was moving. So this was actually another model and most of the debate during the later the 1600s and into the early 1700s was you know whether it was this model or the one that was under it that I erased the so with the sun at the center. It was between those two models, the Ptolemaic one with the Earth at the center and everything going around the Earth had been disproved by Galileo. But that's all that he disproved. He was never able to prove that the Earth actually moved. That would not come until long after his, after his death. But they were really you know, a big step actual, actually making observations, seeing things about the universe that changed our understanding of how things worked. We certainly learned either way that all the planets Ignore the Earth. Earth still isn't a planet yet. It's coming up. It will become a planet soon. But all the planets then orbited around the Sun. So we did come up with that. The debate was whether the Sun was at the center or the Earth was at the center still at this point. Now in terms of how they moved, whoops, here's the phases. There's some better, better pictures than I can draw up there. Um, Phases of Venus are absolutely impossible to explain in an Earth-centered model. So the phases that we see, if the Earth is at the center and the Sun orbits around that and Venus orbits around the Earth, you would see a new phase. You would see it waxing and getting bigger and bigger crescent until it got out to its furthest point. You would then see a waning crescent getting thinner and thinner until it went to its new phase and then it would be again waxing and waning crescent. That's all you would ever see. In terms of a heliocentric model with the Sun at the center, you can then explain the complete cycle of phases. Right? You explain the size difference here fine because you have it on an epicycle moving closer or further from the Earth. Here you can explain the same thing, but in this case, because it's on the other side of the Sun, you're seeing it fully illuminated. 
you would see a very close to full phase and exactly the same set of phases that you see for the moon going around the Earth. Meaning that this had to, this, that Venus had to orbit, Venus had to orbit around the Sun. Whether the Earth did or not, that's, that's still debatable at this point. But we're going to come up to the point where we're, we're going to accept that as we go through the rest of, the, uh, rest of this section in terms of understanding how the Earth, how the Earth works. We're going to look at that for the rest of them. But it really didn't, we really didn't get the absolute proof. There was one in the early 1700s, we got a hint of it when we measured what's called aberration of light. And that helped us a little bit in terms of giving us an idea that the Earth was moving. And it's caused by the way we see light from distant objects and the fact that light doesn't move infinitely fast. Don't worry about a detail of that, but that was sort of our first hint of it. The main thing was in the 1800s when we, det- when we did detect the parallax of the stars. Because no matter what you do here, if the Earth is still, you're not going to detect a parallax. You're not going to te- detect that shift. You need to be moving to two different places in order to see that. That was really the key that finally convinced anyone who was left behind that the Earth was at the center. Although by that time, uh, the vast majority of astronomers had gone from the time of the Renaissance thinking that the Earth was the center over those couple hundred years to believing that the Sun was at the center. But it was good to finally have that proof. All right, now how did the planets move? Well, in order to determine how the planets moved, we had to make a lot of observations. So we needed a lot of great observations, very accurate observations, to find out where the planets were and really map out how they were, how this was, how they were moving in the sky. And this was done by another astronomer, which I believe is mentioned in your text, but I don't have them on the slides here. And that was Tycho Brahe, a Danish astronomer. And he made, uh, he spent his life making astronomical observations of the positions of the planets, stars, and the like. So he made a lot of observations over many decades. And the analysis of these observations, I should say he also made them, he lived a little bit before Galileo. So this is all pre-telescope. He was making all these observations extremely accurately before the advent of the telescope. He could actually measure positions to probably about, I've seen various numbers, but about two arc minutes. Go back to the first lecture again, right? Arc minute, one arc minute, or sorry, 30 arc minutes is about the width of the full moon on the sky. So he was measuring with his, with his eye about a 15th up to, I've seen even one arc minute, you know, maybe a 15th to a 30th of the width of the full moon. Now that's pretty good. I mean, obviously he trained himself for many years to be able to make these. He did have some instruments, some great quadrants and things that he could use to judge the positions of the planets and to measure them accurately. But that was extremely accurate measurements for the time. And he had an assistant, which is the one that I've got up on the, on the screen here, who was Kepler, who actually observed, took, didn't do the observations, who actually took his data and analyzed it. Kepler was the mathematician. So he actually took all of these observations that Kepler, that, that Tycho had made, and put that all together. 
find out, okay, what does this mean? What can I, how can I find out how these orbits actually work? And he came up with three laws of planetary motion. The first of which said that planetary orbits are ellipses. How about two E's there? There we go. Planetary orbits are ellipses. That's a big jump from everything we had before. Everything from Ptolemy and before Ptolemy's time up until even including Copernicus had said that the orbits were circles. Now we're making the idea that the orbits are ellipses instead. What is an ellipse? Now I've got a nice picture of an ellipse here. An ellipse is essentially a squashed circle. So think of a circle that you've squashed a little tiny bit. This is done to extreme. The planets are not even close to this squashed. And in fact, if we did the planets to scale and I put them up there, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them and a circle. But there's enough that, and, and Tycho's observations were accurate enough that you could measure exactly how squished those orbits were. And that meant things like it explained a lot of things. It explained varying speeds, why the planets appeared to move faster and slower when they got closer to the sun. They're going to move a little bit faster. When they got further away from the sun, they're going to move a little bit slower, giving you a preview of the next law coming up here. And it explained the varying sizes of the planets. Sometimes they're a little bit closer to Earth. Sometimes they're a little bit further away. It made things a lot easier in terms of the explanation conceptually. Now, it probably made things a lot harder in terms of the calculations, right? It's a lot easier to calculate with circles. No, 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 no computers, you know, can't just plug it into the computer and say, here, here it is, and do that. A lot easier to explain that observation, you know, but to do it with ellipses is going to be a lot more complicated calculation to do. And that does, just as an aside, sort of makes you wonder a little bit. What if we'd had computers back then? Would we still follow Ptolemy's model? You know? Would it be so easy to do that? Well, we can just add more epicycles to predict the motions of the planets. We don't need to change anything. So it makes you wonder about you know, theories. How many theories get kept on today? Well, we can just keep fixing it and fixing it and fixing it and make the model work. It still works, but it gets more and more complicated, which is one of the reasons on the very first, uh, first lecture where I said that you know, a, a, the, models, the scientific model is supposed to be simple. So as they start to get too complicated, as the geocentric one did, you, know, you start to look for something else. Certainly, even though it's an ellipse, it's a lot simpler because you just have the sun at the center, you have the planets orbiting the sun in a bunch of ellipses, and that's all you need to explain the motions of the planets and explain them much more accurately than what uh, Ptolemy's model was able to do. Now the sketch on the, right, on the left hand side there is actually showing you how you can draw an ellipse. An ellipse has two foci and if you stick two pins in there and get a, a piece of string and you trace it along, that'll actually draw out the shape of an ellipse. So that's actually how you draw out the shape of an ellipse. Second law, we like this one, number two, says that a line joining the sun and planet sweeps out equal areas in equal times.
equal area, and that makes lots of sense, right? Right? No. What does that mean, right? This is the way Kepler found the law, was he would actually take all the observations, put them together and get the orbits, and then geometrically, physically look at an orbit like this and say that, well, as the, sun, as the planet moved from this location to this location, it swept out so much area. Imagine a line here. That's going to sweep out so much area. And he could do a calculation and find out how much area that was. How much area of space. He found out that it was the same, that if this took two months to go from here to here, and it took two months to go from here to here, and it took two months to go from here to here, that the areas, this A, the long skinny one, was exactly the same area as this shorter, fatter one. So the areas were exactly the same. That's how he found it. What it really means is that planets move faster when closer to the sun. Makes a little more sense that way? I mean, this, is the, this is the formal statement of the law. That's what he found, that that line joining the two swept out equal areas in equal times. What it really means is that a planet or any object orbiting the sun moves a lot faster when it's close to the sun, zips around, and when it's further away from the sun, it moves a little bit slower. We can see that here on Earth. If you recall, I think I mentioned last time that we talked about the seasons and the cause of the seasons being the tilt of the Earth. We also mentioned that the, sun is, the Earth is closest to the sun in January. Right? So Earth is closest to the sun in January. Earth is furthest away from the sun in July. So backwards of what you'd think for the seasons. But if you actually map out how long the seasons are, how long is spring, how long is it from the first day of spring to the first day of summer, first day of summer to the first day of autumn, first day of autumn to first day of winter, first day of winter to first day, you know, how long is each season, you find out that winter is the shortest season by a couple of days. Winter is actually a couple days shorter. So winter, that's that, and that's because, why is that? Because the Earth is a little bit further away from the sun at that, or a little bit closer to the sun at that time, and moving a little bit faster. So winter is actually about two days, two to, two to three days shorter than summer. So we didn't just put extra days in the calendar. It was February doesn't have 28 days in winter just to make winter a little bit shorter for us. That's physically how it is. If you actually look at this physical start of the seasons astronomically, it really is a few days shorter to go from the first day of winter to the first day of spring than it is to go from the first day of summer to the first day of autumn. And that's just because of our positioning where we are around the sun. In winter, we're closer, moving a little bit faster. In summer, we're a little bit further away, moving a little bit slower. So we can actually see that here on the Earth in terms of our seasons. Questions? No? no? Make sense there? Okay. So we see that. We see it even more extreme when we look at comets. Comet orbits are really more like this. This is not like a planetary orbit. Planetary orbits would be almost perfectly circular. Comet orbits are not. Uh, Halley's Comet comes back about every 76 years. Uh, was last here in the mid-80s and is due back, what, 2050-something or so. Um, it spends a couple of years in close to the sun. So it takes it maybe 76 years to make this whole orbit. It might spend a couple of years in this inner portion. Its orbit is so stretched out and elliptical 
that it spends most of its time moving very, very slowly in the outer depths of the solar system. Very slowly. Because it's so much further away. So in order to follow Kepler's law, it comes in, it's real close to the sun, that air, the area swept out has to be the same. Very, very fast. Comes whipping around and then disappears and comets spend most of their time vast out in the vast depths of the solar system. So we see it even more then. Now Kepler's third law, he actually came up with a, a few years later. His first two laws were published earlier. His third law was published a little bit later. And I'm going to write it mathematically here. And it just says that a cubed is equal to p squared. It's written out in words up there for you. I won't write the whole thing down again. But what it really says is that the square of the period of the planet, what's the period of the planet? How long it takes to orbit around once. How long it takes to orbit the sun. So period of the Earth is one year. It takes the Earth one year to go around the sun one time. Mars takes almost two years. Jupiter takes about 12 years. And so on. Depending on further away, take a little, take a little bit longer. And that's proportional. There's a relationship between that period, how long it takes to go around the sun one time, and how far it is away from the sun. And that is the cube of the semi-major axis. Semi-major axis, I showed you on the previous ones, but I didn't mention it. You have a major axis of an ellipse. Distance across the widest part of the ellipse. There's also a minor axis going across the narrowest part. The semi-major axis would go from the center to one end. So this would be called the semi-major axis. We also know it as about the average distance. Sometimes the planet's a little bit closer, sometimes it's further away. The semi-major axis is really the average distance of the planet from the sun. So on average, Earth is one astronomical unit away. So what's done here in this little table is that we've gotten, got the eight planets here. This is the semi-major axis, how far they are away from the sun. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune as we progress out through the solar system. The orbital period, so how far they are away from the sun, how long do they take to orbit? Now Kepler probably found this by trial and error. He didn't just say, oh, well I'll just square this one and cube this one and maybe they'll be the same. He probably compared them and he probably tried you know, squaring this one and, square, and leaving that one alone or squaring this and looking for some kind of relationship. And he finally found that when he squared the period, so multiplied this by itself, and multiplied this one by itself three times, he found that he got almost exactly the same numbers. And that's what the very last column is showing you here. So taking p squared and dividing by a cubed, you're getting numbers very, very close to 1. 1.002, 1.001, 1 precisely, 0.999998, all numbers very, very close to 1. So there's a very distinct relationship between these two. Now, coming up, Newton will actually demonstrate this and show us how this works in terms of uh, gravitation. Newton can actually prove that this works and actually finds us an even much better equation that we'll use throughout the rest of the course because it turns out that Newton's version of this equation involves the mass of the objects. 
And what you find is uh, a cubed over. The mass of the object at the center, so in this case if you're looking at the sun, this is the mass of the central object. And I'm going to say that in general just because we can use it elsewhere and elsewhere in the universe. But the mass depends on how far it is away, how far the smaller object is orbiting, and how long it takes to orbit. So that means, going back to Galileo, Galileo saw the moons of Jupiter. Using Newton's version, we can now determine the mass of Jupiter. This works for the Earth, right? The Earth is one astronomical unit away from the Sun. The Earth orbits in one year. We like those numbers, right? One cubed is one. One squared is one. That means that the mass of the object at the center is one, right? Boy, I like those nice easy numbers. So for the Sun is one solar mass. So guess what? It doesn't really tell us the mass exactly but it will tell us relative to the Sun. If we were to look at the Moon orbiting around the Earth and we measured how far the Moon was away in astronomical units, measured how fast it orbited in years, I could then tell you how massive the Earth is in solar masses, relative how, much, how massive is it compared to the Sun. I can do for something orbiting around Jupiter, I can compare it to the mass, and compare that Jupiter's mass to the mass of the Sun. It's not limited to the solar system. I could look at other stars, Right? If I see stars orbiting around each other, I can do the same thing and figure out the mass of the stars. I can watch stars orbiting around a galaxy, stars in our galaxy orbiting around. We can measure the mass of the galaxy. I can watch galaxies orbiting around each other. Determine these two numbers, I can determine the masses of the galaxies. So we'll see this coming back. You'll see me refer to you know, Kepler's third law throughout the course as we talk about measuring masses further out in the solar system and in the universe. We actually can measure those based on this. Now this is actually a simplified version. There's a more complicated one with uh, some other numbers in it which I sometimes use in one of the labs. So we might, you might get to see that next week. So we might look at one of those next week with using the calculations. Again, I don't ask you to do anything like that on the, on the exams. Alright, so Kepler. So what that means is that we've now got a pretty good idea of how things work, of how the solar system is set up. We've got the Sun at the center, we've got the planets orbiting around it. We actually, from that previous table, that was even known before, that table was known from the time of Kepler. We knew roughly how far everything was away from the Sun in terms of the Earth. Right? I'm going to go back one slide here for just a second. You know, these numbers were known, not quite to this accuracy, but roughly were known. Ignore these two, these two planets weren't known yet, but the planets that were known, these numbers were pretty well known to, to the, at the time of Kepler. So we knew how far everything was away from the Sun in terms of the Earth's distance. What we didn't know is how far, what does that mean? What is one astronomical unit? How far is the Earth really away from the Sun? Okay, we know that it's one astronomical unit, but that doesn't mean much to us. Right? We have to know what one astronomical unit is. So we could actually measure that. Only very recently there are various methods that have been used to measure it, including things like uh, the transits of Venus. If anyone got a chance to see the transit of Venus this past year, last year in June, Venus passed directly in front of the Sun. And 
Next, if you missed it, you're out of luck because the next one's like 130 years away. Um, but Venus passed directly in front of the sun a little over almost, almost a year ago. And by observing that in different parts of the Earth, you could actually determine the parallax of Venus, the shift of it, and figure out how far Venus was away from the Earth directly. Actual figure out a number of miles. How many miles is Venus away from the Earth? Now, more accurately now, and developed, you know, at the time of World War II, developed radar. Well, that makes it even easier. We can send a radar signal to Venus, bounce it off, and send it back. If we do that when we know how far Venus is away from the Earth in astronomical units, such as when we're at our closest to it, we know how, we know how, how fast the signal is going, right? Radar signal travels at the speed of light. So we know exactly how fast it's traveling. We know, we can, then we can measure the distance. We can time how long it takes. We send the signal now. How many minutes do we have to wait for the signal to get back? Uh, in this case, you'd be waiting about three minutes. It would take about, th- sorry, take about three minutes to travel there, about three minutes to travel back. It would take about, about, six, about six minutes. Yeah, about five, six minutes it would take to get back. So you time that if you know how fast light travels, right? You know, you know the velocity and you know how long it took, you can figure out how far it traveled. So you can figure out the distance to Venus in that case. If you figure out the distance to Venus, you know how much 0.3 astronomical units is in miles, and then it's very easy to scale that and say how far is the distance to the sun. So why go through this extra step? Why, do we bounce, why don't we just bounce the thing off the, off the sun itself? Well, the sun is bright in the radio, right radio anyway. It actually emits radio waves itself, which is what radar is. So that, may, that causes some problems. It also doesn't have a nice solid surface to bounce things off of. So it's very hard to get an accurate measurement off the surface of the sun. So you can't bounce things off the surface of the sun, but you can easily enough bounce them off Venus. And that really gives us the actual scale. That tells us that instead of this being just one astronomical unit, which doesn't have a lot of meaning to us, that it's actually about 93 million miles, about 145 million kilometers in terms of distance, in terms of how far it is from the Earth to the Sun. So we can actually put a physical distance with that. Still seems like a lot, right? You know, 93 million miles. Now how long does it take you to, how long does it take you to put 93 million miles on your car, right? Quite, quite a while. You're, dri- you're driving a lifetime to get that, aren't you? So if you want to drive to the, drive to the sun, you know, at you know, 65 miles an hour or whatever, it would take you, a while, take you quite a while to get there. <laughs> good, good, good homework problem. I'll have to add that one in sometime. How long would, not, not, this, not this, maybe next semester. <laughs> How long would it take you to drive to the sun at 65 miles an hour, you know? And it, it'd find, it, would be, it would be an interesting thing to see. It gives you a concept of you know, how big, how vast that distance is, because that's something you, you don't get. You don't get by looking at this, because that's not even close to being to scale. In fact, I'll do that. And when I talk about the planets, I'll do a little scale model uh, system here that we'll look at. All right. So as I said, we kind of jumped through the history here. And we're already up to Newton. And we've really skimmed through a lot of the very early stuff. I really did not talk about a lot of the very oldest stuff, some of which you know, I find interesting, talking about things like Stonehenge. 
If we have time after, I may come back and do, with, do that, but I want to make sure we get through the required portions of the course first. I don't want to take so much time here and then find out that we're not getting through something at the end that we're supposed to have covered or that I have to rush through it very quickly. So we are missing a lot there, but the history is also something that I find interesting, so I feel like we're missing a lot, a lot, of, a lot of stuff there. So now we're going to come up with three more laws. We had Kepler's laws of planetary motion. Laws like to come in threes for some reason. So we're now going to have Newton's three laws of motion. So Newton, another uh, mathematician, physicist, he's the one you get to blame if you've ever taken calculus or if you're ever going to take calculus. You know, uh, started being developed earlier on than that, but he really formalized a lot of calculus in order to solve some of his problems of gravity. So. The one you get to blame if you ever take calculus, it's all, it's all his fault. Eh, not really. If he hadn't developed it, somebody else would have, right? So somebody else would have come up with that. But some of the things he studied in terms of physics were laws of motion that explain how things interact with each other. And his first law says, essentially, an object at rest remains at rest. Okay? Simple enough. And an object in uniform straight line motion will remain in that motion. Try to figure out how to word that. Now, straight line and constant speed is how they do it. Sometimes it's worded, like, worded a little bit differently here. And it will do that unless an external force acts. So, big, long, drawn-out, wordy law there. But really what it's saying is that if something's at rest, it's going to stay there. So, if I step something down, my little case for the iPod here, if I set it down, it's going to stay there. It's not suddenly going to start moving unless something happens to it. Right? So if I leave it there and come back, we come back tomorrow, it should still be sitting there, right? Now if somebody walks in and moves it, then there's an external force acting on it. But otherwise, in, in, in lieu of that, if I set it on the back counter someplace where nobody's going to see it, you know, the computer, there's a computer and a printer back there, well, you expect to still see them tomorrow. You don't expect them to see them moving across the room. They're at rest. They're going to stay in rest unless some external force. You know, we get hurt by an earthquake or something. Yeah, that's an external force that will cause them to move. So that, that makes sense to us. That was understood. But it also says that an object in, a, in motion, if you start an object moving, it's going to keep moving unless a force acts. So if I start it moving and give it a little push, it keeps going forever, right? Why didn't it keep going forever? Friction. There's an external force acting on it, right? If I did this on an air hockey table, would it go? It would keep going until it banged into the wall, right? It would go nice and straight. It would go in that straight line. So there's an external force acting on it. There's friction. Not as much here as there would be on some things, but there is friction acting, betw acting between the case and the tabletop. If I had something, you know, a ball, it would roll a lot better. Oops, let's do it the other way so I don't unroll the whole thing. Didn't bring a ball here, but if I roll it, it's going to keep going forever. External force just acted. It just banged into something. 
or if I roll it the other way, you know, now it moved. External force, right? Didn't keep going in a straight line because gravity pulled it down. So some sort of external force has to act to change it. So if something is moving, if something is, mo is moving and it's not moving in a straight line, then there has to be some external force on it. That's sort of the hint coming up to, gra to talk about gravity. Okay? Because when we look at objects in the solar system, are they moving in a straight line? Right? The moon's not moving in a straight line, it's moving in a circular orbit around the Earth. That means there's got to be, according to Newton's first law, there's got to be some external force acting upon it. Has to be some force causing it to change from that straight line motion. Otherwise, if we got rid of that force, moon's moving around the Earth right now, if we turned off gravity, what happens? Moon just goes flying off exactly as it's moving right now in that direction and heads off into space. Now if you can magically turn off gravity, that's great. Um, you sometimes see that experiment, if you spin a, throw something around, spin something in a circle and let go of it, if you let go of it at the right point, you know, it'll just head off in a straight line. You've removed your force that's acting upon it. So an object at rest is going to stay there, it's not going to go anyplace unless something acts upon it. Could be gravity, could be me pushing it, could be somebody else moving it. An object that's in motion in a straight line at a constant speed will keep doing that unless some external force acts on it. You know, go back to the air hockey table, right? You hit the puck, it's going to go straight in a straight line until it bounces into a wall, bounces into the, you know, the other, the other person playing, bounces into the, the cup holder, you know, someplace, some external force is going to act upon it to change that motion. His second law states, uh, most simply, that the acceleration of an object, and I'm going to write it in the equation form up here, if a force is exerted on an object, if I push on an object, acceleration depends on how much force I exert, and it depends on how massive the object is. So the more force I exert, the faster something's going to accelerate. The more massive the object is, the less it's going to accelerate. So if we have, um, bring a cat in here, right, and I apply some force to the cat and push it, I'll probably get scratched or bitten, but I'll push the cat, it's going to move, right? Ignore the fact that it's going to move on its own probably, you know. If I give a push to that cat, it's going to budge. If I were to bring an elephant in here and push with exactly the same amount of force, how much is it going to move? Ignore the fact that it's probably going to walk away too, but it's not going to budge near as much. Right? The difference between the two, I'm applying the same amount of force. Right? I can push on them just as hard. And if I push on that cat, boy, it's sure going to budge. Right? I can easily move the cat. I'm not going to budge that elephant. The mass is quite different. So the acceleration is going to be much, much less for the elephant than it would be for the cat. It also it depends on the amount of force. You know, how much force do you push with? The more you push, the faster it will go. The, the faster it will move. The more it will accelerate. So if I push a little bit, something accelerates with a little bit. If I push it twice as hard, it's going to accelerate twice as fast. So it depends on how much force you're pushing with and how massive the object is and that determines how fast it will accelerate. Acceleration is really just a change in velocity. 
Acceleration in a physical sense is a little bit different than we, th we typically think of it. When you're in the car and you hit the gas, you accelerate, right? Physically, when you're in the car and you hit the brakes, you accelerate. Physical, it's decelerate. We call it deceleration, right? But in, in the physical term, you don't use acceleration and decelerate. It's all acceleration. And acceleration is just a change in your velocity. So if your velocity is changing, whether it's increasing, that's a positive acceleration. If it's decreasing, slowing down, hitting the brakes in the car, you're still accelerating in a physical sense. So a physicist would still say, you're accelerating, it's just a negative acceleration and you're slowing down. Your speed is getting less and less. So that's what we mean by acceleration, it's just a change in speed. It can also mean a change in direction. So if you are uh, not changing your speed at all, you're dri driving around a curve in a circle, almost a circle, a racetrack or something, right? You're going at the same speed. You know, lock yourself at the same speed, put the cruise control on, you're going at a constant speed. There still is an acceleration involved. You're still accelerating as you go around that curve. You're not going any faster, you're not going any slower, but you're changing the direction of your, of your speed. Changing the direction also causes an acceleration and requires a force be present. And that's what's happening, for example, with the moon again. The moon is moving around the Earth. It's moving pretty much at the same speed all the time. It's not changing. It's, yes, it does a little tiny bit because of Kepler's second law, but let's not worry about that for right now. Um, but it's moving in a curved path. Because it's doing that, there is an acceleration associated with it and therefore a force. It's changing the direction of its speed. So that's Newton's second law, really, uh, given by the equation there. Acceleration depends on how much force, how hard you're pushing on something, and how massive it is. Certainly, if you push the same amount of force and I want to push on something little, you know, grab my pen and move my pen, I can move that very easily. Or if I want to push on something bigger, I want to shove on the board and the wall here, well, I can sit here and shove all day, and I can stay here all night, and when you guys come back tomorrow, I can still be, it's not going to budge, right? Not because I'm not pushing with just as much force, but because it's got so much more mass. I'm not going to be able to budge that. If I budged it, then you'd be shocked, right? You know, if it falls into there, there's something you know, structurally deficient in the wall. Newton's third law is equal and opposite forces. And it just says that, you know, probably you've heard it as, you know, for every action, you've heard it this way probably. There is an equal and opposite reaction. Right? I push on something, it pushes back on me. I throw something in one direction. You know, I get I get a force in the other direction. Um, easy one with that is if you if you ever shot a firearm, you'll do that, right? You get that recoil back. Well. That's because you've sent something out, a little tiny bullet out at a very high speed in one direction. So in order to balance that, everything kicks back. Not near as fast, right? You don't go shooting back as fast as the bullet went out. But you're going to still get kicked backwards by it. So that's an example of an equal and opposite force. You send an object off in one direction, there's going to be an equal force in the other direction. The astronauts out in space would be able to do this. If you needed to be able to move, how do they do it out in space? Little jet burst of air, right? You push the air out in one direction, 
you're going to go in the other direction. So you can move very easily out that way. Otherwise, what does Newton's first law say? Right? You're, you're at rest. You don't want to move. You have to do something. You have to apply some kind of force in order to get you to move. Newton's third law is also very important. Newton's third law really uh, keeps, in a way, keeps everything together. Keeps you sitting on the chair, right? You're, you're exerting a force on the chair by sitting on it, right? You've got some amount of weight pushing down on the chair. That chair pushes back with you with exactly the same amount of force. If it didn't, if you push down with too much force, what's going to happen? Boom! You're on the ground. You're sitting on the ground all of a sudden, right? If the chair decided to push back with you with too much force, then you're pushed off the surface of the chair. So the chair knows exactly how much force to push with to balance what you're, what you're sitting on. But that's the same, another example of Newton's third law. You're pushing a force, it's a force, everything's in balance, so there's no net force and therefore no motion. Because you're not moving, I know there's net force, I know there's no net force on you. Right? You're not falling to the ground, gravity's pulling you down. In order to balance that, there's got to be something pushing you up. Because if gravity was the only force, then you're going to be bouncing down to the floor and then through to, down to the bottom floor and then through, you know, you're going to keep falling down until something stops you. So the chair is exerting an equal and opposite force and balances everything and keeps you with essentially zero net, net force so that there is no, if there's no force, if the force is zero, doesn't matter what your mass is, the acceleration is still going to be zero so you're not going to move. Okay. And then on to gravity a little bit here. On the Earth's surface, gravity is constant. Doesn't really matter where you are on the Earth's surface. Gravity, acceleration due to gravity is all about the same. So if I measure it here, or I measure it, you know, uh, hundreds of miles away, I'm still going to get the same value for the amount of acceleration due to gravity. If you move really high up on a mountain, you might be able to measure some very small deviations, but they're very tiny. Gravity, the Earth's gravity extends out quite a ways, and in fact even the, the space station up in orbit is still subject to very close to the same amount of gravity that we have here on Earth. So why is everybody weightless then, right? They're not really. Really when you're in orbit, it's not that there's no gravity there, it's that you're in a constant state of free fall. You are constantly falling around the Earth. You're just falling in this great big circle around the Earth, which is in orbit. The amount of gravity the Earth is pulling with is still essentially the same. You're just constantly falling. Now they do free fall experiments here on Earth. You can do them. Uh, you know, they, they test the astronauts. They take them up in a plane and then put the plane, get the plane really high up and bring it in a state of free fall. And for a short time you can simulate weightlessness. While it's free falling, there is essentially no, gra the gravity is still acting, but you're falling just, your, your plane is falling just as fast as gravity is pulling you, so you're going to be in a weightless state. So it's one of the ways for the astronauts to be able to train them to, you know, how it's, what it's going to be like in zero gravity. And it's always pointed directly towards the center of the Earth, which is one of the reasons you can go to Australia and not feel like you're standing on your head, right? I mean, technically, yes, if you're down south of the equator, you know, here's the Earth. You know, we're standing up here. Uh, let's see. My wonderful little stick figure, you know, that's, that's probably about where we are. You know, we're standing at angles like this. 
It doesn't feel like it because gravity, no matter where we are, is always pulling us straight down. So we're st standing at some odd angle. Certainly someone down here, if I can draw somebody upside down, is standing, you know, they're standing upside down relative to the center. If you could go take a picture, you know, it looks like everybody's standing upside down. You don't feel it there because of the way gravity works. Gravity always pulls towards the center. So no matter where you're standing, gravity is pulling you in the same direction. So it's not that people down below are going to fall, can fall off the earth because gravity pulls in the same direction, always towards the center. But yes, if you could go take a look, you know, stand off the earth and look at it, you would see, unless you're at the, whatever the, whatever's straight north at the time or on the North Pole, you know, you'd be standing about straight up. Here on the equator, if you're on the equator, you'd be standing, you know, 90 degrees, you'd be standing on your side. And down south of the equator, you'd actually be standing, your feet would be, your head would be below your feet. Again, not in the normal sense, it's not the same as standing upside down because gravity is still pulling you, pulling everybody down towards the center of the earth. It doesn't matter where you are. But if you could take a picture of people standing on the earth, that is physically what you would, you would see. People would be standing, you know, essentially look like they're standing upside down. So, Newton's law of gravity, don't have to do three this time, this time we just get one. So we get, get away a little bit easier this time. Um, Newton's law of gravity it tells us what the force is between two objects. Let me erase Kepler here. Newton's law of gravity tells us that there's a force between every two objects in the universe and it's given by this equation. Not too, not too horrible of an equation, but not, not, not the simplest one, not as nice as a couple of the ones we've looked at like this which weren't too bad, but relatively easy. And it just says that the force depends on two objects, depends on what their mass is. So there's a force between the Earth and the Moon. So you need the mass of the Earth, you need the mass of the Moon, you need the distance between the Earth and the Moon, how far away is it. And G is just a gravitational constant. This is just some number. Doesn't matter where you are in the universe, that's always the same. So some constant number. And you Put them in there, take that constant, multiply it by the mass of one object times the mass of another object, divide it by the square of the distance between them, and find out what the force is between those two objects. So you can do that for any two objects in the universe. So if you want to find out what the force is between the Earth and Jupiter, all you need is those three numbers. Find out what the force is between the Earth and Jupiter. If you want to find out what the force is between you and the Moon, Take, your, take the moon's mass, take your mass, how far are you away from the moon, and you can figure out what force the moon is exerting on you and what force you are exerting on the moon. They're exactly the same. You're pulling on the moon just as much as the moon is pulling on you. You're pulling on the earth just as much as the earth is pulling on you. So if I uh, jump down, if I get up and jump down to the earth and land, right, I jump down, boom. Try not to fall. And I'm, I'm jumping down. The Earth is pulling me down. I push myself up in the air. The Earth pulls me back down. But Newton's law also says I'm pulling the Earth back up as well. And we're meeting in the middle someplace. Except that middle isn't really in the middle. That middle is much closer to the Earth because my mass isn't even close to the Earth's mass. It's got so much more mass. And if we go back to Newton's second law, the acceleration depends on the mass. 
Well, the force is identical. I'm pulling on the Earth just as much as it's pulling on me. There's no difference in that. But boy, the Earth's got a lot more mass than, than any of us do. So the acceleration, I'm going to be the one that's accelerating because I've got the little teeny tiny mass by comparison. It's got the great big mass and it's not going to accelerate at all. In some cases we see there are stars that orbit each other that have about the same mass and then we see them both orbiting around each other. So you'll actually see that in some stars when we get out to that, those, those chapters and talk about binary stars, stars that are orbiting around each other. Um, the graph here is showing how the force decreases so that if you're one unit away from an object and you move you know, twice as far away so if we could take the moon, if we could magically take the moon and put it twice as far away from the Earth as it really is right now, we'd find that the force was one quarter the amount. If we could move it three times away, it would be one ninth, four times would be one sixteenth, five times one twenty-fifth. The force drops off very, very quickly. So the gravitational force gets much, much less as you move away from the object. So if we looked at the Earth, the Earth is one astronomical unit away from the Sun. Saturn is 10 astronomical units away from the Sun, roughly. So the force of gravity from the Sun at the Earth's distance is 1, whatever it is. The force of gravity at Saturn's distance would be 1 one-hundredth. Force of gravity drops off very, very quickly as you get further away. And that's because of this square term in the bottom. The far, further you get away, the slower that force, that amount of force gets. So yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, Back. Yeah. Um, like, how would you do that equation? It's all multiplication. Okay. Yeah, if there's nothing in there, it's all it's it's implied multiplication. It's g times m1 times m2 divided by r squared. Yeah. Sorry. Some of those things get to be instinctive, so please ask the questions because you know I'm used to seeing that for many years, so I don't always catch that it's not there. So yeah, that's all implied multiplication. So this is what I was a little bit of what I was showing. It's the gravitational pull of the sun. That planet wants to move in a straight line at a constant speed. We want to, you know. Earth doesn't want to orbit the sun. It wants to go in this direction. But there's a force. The sun is sun's gravity is pulling on it and that changes the direction of that. So it's trying to go this way. And that little bit of force pulls it and pulls it into a state around here. Now it wants to go in this direction. Sun's still pulling it down. That just keeps going on and on and on and keeps the Earth in an orbit around the Sun. It's the gravitational pull of the Sun that's deviating it from, wanting to, from being able to move in a straight line as it wants to. So it wants to move in a straight line, but it's unable to because of the gravity of the Sun. All right. The other thing I, mentioned, I said is that I sort of mentioned a little bit about this, the center of mass, but I didn't formally state it. And you've seen this if you've ever been on a, on a teeter-totter, right? If you get one person and one person is much more massive than the other, or is this, if two people are about the same mass, about the same weight, and they're at the same distance from the center, they're going to balance pretty well. If you have several people, if you put two people on one side of about the same mass, they're going to have a lot more mass and it's going to tilt in one direction. That's the concept of center of mass is where exactly where you'd balance everybody. So if you had two equal two masses on this side and one and each of these people weighed about the same amount 
then your, your point of balance is going to be much, much closer to the 2. This would also work for orbits that if you had a star, you had two stars, one star was the mass of the sun and one star was twice the mass of the sun. This one's going to orbit, this is the center of mass, that's where they're going to orbit around. They're not orbiting around each other. They're really always orbiting around this center of mass, but this, the star with two masses is going to move around a smaller orbit closer to the center of mass. And the star with one mass is going to move a bigger orbit further away. That works for the Earth going around the Sun too, or the Moon going around the Earth. The Moon and the Earth are really orbiting around each other, but in this case, you know, here's the Earth, and here's the Moon, right? Moon orbits around the Earth, but Really, the Earth and the Moon are orbiting around some point near the center of the Earth. So the Earth is making some very small orbit around there, and the Moon is making a much bigger orbit around this center of mass. Because the Earth is so much more massive than the Moon, that's well deep inside the core of the Earth, way down to the center of the Earth. But it still exists. It still is that the Earth is actually orbiting around a point inside itself. So it's actually making this little motion of its own. Earth doing around the Sun is the same thing. Earth is much less massive than the Sun. So the Sun, but the Sun is actually making a little tiny orbit. We see that when we look at stars. If we had two stars that were of equal mass orbiting around a center of mass, then you'd have you know, orbits going around and not the neatest thing drawn, but they'd be orbiting around each, they'd be orbiting around, both being orbiting around that center of mass. It's just in these extreme cases where one thing is so much bigger, mass, more massive than the other, that we see a big difference. All right, was that? Nope, last one, okay. And that's sort of showing here what we see with the orbits. There's the comet focus drawn a lot more, not nicer than I can do. That if you have two stars of exactly the same mass, you get a common focus at the center, one orbiting around the one, one orbiting around the other. That would be the center of mass of the two of the two objects, and that would be where they would orbit around. If you double the mass of one, you got a much more massive star and a much less massive star. They're still orbiting around that center of mass, but this one gets a much smaller orbit. Here's the sun. So the sun is actually, the sun center is actually orbiting around this focus. So it's actually orbiting around the common center of mass of the two objects. So the sun is actually orbiting around as well. And that's what Newton, Newton is telling us, that everything's always in motion relative to each other. So we're constantly seeing motions that way. And the last statement there is really just saying that Kepler's laws really depend on Newton. Newton can actually figure out all of Kepler's laws from his equations, from his laws of motion, from his law of gravity. He can actually figure out all of uh, all the laws that Kepler derived by looking at all that data. So he had to go through and study it and figure out exactly how things worked. Newton came along another 100, 100 or so years later and was able to build on that and get gravity that actually explained why Kepler's laws worked. Kepler didn't have a reason as to why his laws worked. He just said, this is what it is. The orbits of the planets are ellipses. The planets move faster when they're closer to the sun. And that a cubed and p squared, there's a relationship between the two. 
Newton was able to tell us why they were the same. Alright, let's finish up chapter 1, which um, we really talked about the geocentric models. Uh, the earliest models going back to uh, first models about five or six hundred years BC were all geocentric models putting the Earth at the center. Uh, their big difficulty wasn't explaining retrograde motion. You needed those epicycles, which just, they don't make conceptual sense to us nowadays. They did back then. They worked perfectly fine because there was not all these concepts of gravity and things that we understand now that they didn't. The heliocentric model was much more, much easier to be able to explain retrograde motion. Galileo's observations supported heliocentric, didn't prove it. So he was not able to prove it. He certainly believed that the sun was at the center, but he was not able to demonstrate that. That was not going to be coming for a little, for a little while still. Uh, we went through Kepler's three laws of planetary motion. Again, he found those from observations. They weren't physical laws that he was able to find you know, physically as to what's happening. That was Newton coming up a little bit later. He could actually prove all three of Kepler's laws from his uh, theory of gravity. But he found these from observations. He just looked and mapped out the orbits of the planets from all these observations that Tycho had made and gave us three empirical, what we call empirical laws found from the observations. Finally, as I mentioned already, the laws of uh, Newtonian mechanics really explained all of Kepler's uh, observations, all of his laws that he found. They were able to be explained. And not only that, but expanded upon. So the orbits of the planets are ellipses. Uh, the orbits can actually be circles, they can be ellipses, they can actually be uh, hyperbolic orbits or parabolic orbits. If you've seen a parabola before, a parabola is a shape that looks kind of like this, right, and just goes off forever. Uh, there are comets that orbit like this. That means they come in, pass by the sun once, and head back off into space, never to be seen again. So not only did he explain Kepler's three laws, he actually expanded on them. I talked a little bit about determining masses. That was one way he expanded. Another way was that there are different types of orbits. Everything is not just an ellipse. The planets certainly are. But some comets are not. Some comets come in once and then never come again. So uh, we had uh, the comet that just came by. What was it? Pan-STARRS that came by earlier this year. And if you got a chance to see it, I was unable to. I didn't get a chance to see it. But that was in the evening back in March. It was there for, it had a few days to a week. We had a little time to be able to see it. It came by, but it's heading out in a parabolic or a hyperbolic orbit. It'll never come back again. It's just heading back out into space. So it only comes by once. So there's actually more than just elliptical orbits. As Kepler said, Newton was able to find that there's a variety of different orbits that we can get. And then finally, Newton's law of gravitation I've left up here. Uh, the force depends on the product of the two masses, so multiply those two together and then divide that by the square of the distance. That'll give you the gravitational force between any two objects in the universe. So if I want the gravitational force between me and that pen, I can do it. I can figure out how massive I am, how massive it is, figure out how far away we are, and calculate it. It's going to be an incredibly tiny number. The gravitational force is extremely weak. It's just the only force that works over such tremendous distances, and that's why we see it so much in, in the universe. Questions? No? No?